and our paths probably crossed here in Ellensburg. And we were talking earlier, probably, I probably met you probably in, I don't know, 84 in Ace Records. And I was that kid buying the Clash Records, but um, you remember me, right? Um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right, Mark, uh, I've hit the button. We're live. Um, thank you for allowing me to meet you here in Ellensburg. And uh, so we're recording live on in a recording studio on my equipment. So no offense to the recording studio. Mark, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Hello out there. I'm Mark Pickerel, Ellensburg, Washington resident. Since 1968. <laughs> Do you have that T-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> Working on one. Working on Yeah. So, Mark, your name's come up in multiple conversations with guests, both past and future, of, of our show. And I'm aware of you because of one particular band. And our paths probably crossed here in Ellensburg. And we were talking earlier, probably, I probably met you probably in... I don't know, 84 and Ace Records. And I was that kid buying the Clash Records, but um, you remember me, right? Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So <laughs> I'm going to just jump in and ask a very, very direct question. Your first band that I'm aware of was Screaming Trees. Mm -hmm. Was that your first band? It was, although oh the Screaming Trees were born out of him and those guys. We There was a band... Um, that preceded the Screaming Trees just by a couple of years that didn't feature Mark Lanigan on vocals called him and those guys. And, you know, we, we, I remember that name. No, do you really? I That's do. So That's what I'm like, look, look, look at you. Go, yeah, oh my yeah. gosh. I remember that name. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. So you, you started here in Ellensburg. We're just say with Screaming Trees. How long had you been playing drums at the time you joined the band? Let's see. I started playing drums in uh, sixth grade. Okay. And it was my freshman year that I met Van and Lee Connor, the guitarist and bassist of the Screaming Trees. And uh, we discovered our mutual fascination for, you know, everything from 60s psychedelia to the um, second British invasion of groups like The Clash and Echo and the Bunnymen and oh, wow. uh, okay. Susie and the Banshees, Wire and bands like that um psychedelic furs anyway we we um we formed a band like within a week of meeting and uh <laughs> played for a couple of years under the name him and those guys and then van connor met mark lanigan in a journalism class and um mark had just acquired a drum set through a, a drug deal gone bad and uh basically a guy couldn't couldn't uh couldn't pay up, and so he gave Mark a drum set in lieu of cash payment. So Mark had had just started playing drums, and uh, our band, him and those guys, had kind of hit a wall with what we were trying to do. And you know, we knew it was time for us to to expand our repertoire beyond just playing covers. And so he asked if he could join our band, but wanted to play drums. So I moved to um, the microphone for our first rehearsal 
but it was so obvious that he didn't know what he was doing behind the drums that, and even though I could carry a tune as a singer, I hadn't really developed any kind of special quality or character as a vocalist. So we switched roles and um, right away we could hear that, you know, that he, he possessed a, a quality and uh, uh, a personality as a vocalist that um, was mature beyond his, his years and, and his experience. So how old were you at this time? Um, I would have been probably a sophomore in high school. Okay. So, I don't know, 17 or something like that. So you were, so that would have put- We might add, Scott, that we're doing the interview right here in the very recording studio that we recorded our first record at. This We recorded Other Worlds right where I'm sitting in 1985. So where, in relationship to where I'm at, where was the drum kit? The drum kit for our first session, I think, was right, right where my drums are sitting as we speak. I th- this is now a rehearsal space for me, and my my drums are actually just sitting a few feet from where I'm um, sitting with Scott, and that's where I was set up for our first session. And then I think the next couple records I was set up right behind you. So for help me out here because you guys were young kids. Uh huh. You're in Ellensburg, right. which is not a hotbed of musical activity at that time. I mean. Other than the Ranch Tavern. Yeah, which, you know, other than a lot of really incredible, mostly cover bands passing through. And occasionally, as you might remember, even artists um, uh, like J.J. Cale played at the ranch and John Lee Hooker played the ranch. And uh, every once in a while, yes, we'd get lucky with someone's routing and and uh, get to host a you know, I mean, world-class. To make fun of Ellensburg uh-huh. a little bit, but I saw Ted Nugent at Central and I saw Sammy Hagar at Central. In fact, I was Sammy Hagar's bus bellboy uh, at the Holiday Inn. Huey Lewis has played at Central. Um, yeah, we won't talk about that show. Scott, we'll we'll have to come back to this subject because I ran away from home because my dad wouldn't let me go to that Ted Nugent's or to the Sammy Hagar concert, and um, so I ran away from home. <laughs> to I, I I originally was just had I had snuck out to go to the concert. My parents found out that I snuck out, and so they. I found out through a friend that they were looking for me. So when I found out that I wasn't going to be able to go to the concert because my dad was waiting at the, the concert door, I actually literally ran away from home for the next three days so I could go see Sammy Hagar and Zebra in Spokane. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Okay. So, but that you know, we I know we were getting. I, no, that's I this forget, is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I forget where we. I forget what well, we were we, supposed to be talking. Well, about. Well, I was but. making kind of fun of Ellensburg of being a musical hotbed, and, and and we just off the rails we go. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys are young kids. You're in a recording studio in Ellensburg. How long did it take you to record that first that first album? Okay, so um. I'll back up a little bit. It's kind of an interesting story. So I worked at this record store right down the street called Ace Records. And there was a seven-inch single there by a group called Anonymous. And I noticed that the, and and I I listened to it and it was really unusual. And I asked the store owner, Tim Nelson, about it. And I noticed that the, 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 um, the address to write to the group was an Olympia address. And I'd hardly ever stumbled across any interesting records that were from the Northwest. And this one was especially interesting because it wasn't your your straight up like post-punk garage rock or pub rock that a lot of the bands out of Seattle were playing like the Heats and the Young Fresh Fellows, groups like that. This was avant-garde and really unusual and had 
more in common with like Brian Eno, the Brian Eno, David Byrne collaborations, okay. like a lot of like tape loops and unusual stuff like that. So I asked the owner about this record called Anonymous. He goes, oh, that's Steve Fisk's project. Steve Fisk used to go to Central. So I decided on a whim to just write a fan letter because I was so intrigued with the the idea that that someone from this area and Ellensburg specifically had produced a record that didn't have any, anything in common with the terrain or the, you know, the, um, it wasn't reminiscent of anything else I was hearing out of the Northwest. Anyway, Steve wrote me back and, um, told me about this friend of his, Sam Albright, who was just about done finishing building this recording studio and that I should stop by and say hi or whatever. And anyway, I didn't, but a few months later, Steve was asked to move back to um, Ellensburg to be the house engineer and producer here. And so he found me, so Steve moved back to Ellensburg a few months later and found me working at the Connors uh, video store. We, we, the Connor brothers and the whole family owned this video store by then called New World Video. Um, Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And so Steve walked in and introduced himself. And that happened to coincide with Gary Lee Connor having just finished some home demos that were really um, quite uh, sophisticated. And we were trying to decide, how, how, I mean, as sophisticated as, as they were, they were still demos. And we knew that we needed to actually get into a studio and um, bring a new dimension to, to them. So I gave Steve these demos we'd recorded and then he approached me a few days later and said, hey, these are really great. You guys should book some time with, with us and let's, let's roll tape. So we, you know, within a couple of weeks, we were right in this room recording um, other worlds. I was, like I said, I was a junior in high school and um, the rest is history. So that's how, it all, that's how it all got started. Wow. Yeah. This could go in so many different directions. I mean, it just it just could because I now I want to ask you: Do you remember Frazzini's Pizza? <laughs> well, yeah, I can one up you because um, David Frazzini, John's son, was my replacement when I quit him and those guys for a little while, and and the band turned into the Explosive Generation for about six months, and then they dissolved, and then that's when that the lineup with Mark Lanigan and oh my I kind of all got got into a room to. to you know, see, I warned you that this will go. Yeah, yeah. yeah I warned go, you. So, well, wow. all kinds of sideways here. Oh my god! But gosh. yeah, Frazzini's was a home away from home for all of us because yeah. not only did we love the pizza, but there was video games and yeah. pool tables and yeah. you yeah. know all that. Yeah. I'm sure we ran across each yeah. other there too. Because, yeah. uh, yeah. in fact, uh, and yeah. David and I still keep in touch. But anyway, oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, so screaming trees. I don't know what what else what else should we say about your time in that band? I mean, what was it like? I guess I'll ask you this question. What was it like being a a young kid? Mm-hmm. Kind of the way I see it as being part of a an explosive wave, a genre that just exploded. Yeah, what was it like being in the middle of that hurricane? Sure. Well, it was really exciting, but I'll say that you know we felt like outsiders living on the east side of the cascade curtain and it seemed like you know obviously seattle was the the cultural center of of washington state but um 
Steve, who produced that first recording of ours, was friends with a guy named Calvin Johnson, who had a record label in Olympia called K Records. Well, Calvin used to live in Ellensburg, so there was that connection there. And Steve thought we should send our cassette to Calvin to see if he if he would be interested in distributing it, because K Records was also they were also a, a dis, they also did distribution. So Calvin loved our our cassette and asked us if we'd like to come to Olympia and open for this band called the Wipers, who had a they were out of Portland but had this huge international following. And so it was um, midway through my senior year, we got to go play this really great show in in Olympia. And people just loved us, totally embraced what we were doing. And that was our first indication that what we were doing would be accepted on the other side of the um, the mountains. And um, from from there on, it just really snowballed. And then it was, you know, Calvin introducing us to Bruce Pabot, who ran and operated um, Sub Pop. And Bruce started coming out to our shows and asked us if we'd like to contribute to the first Sub Pop compilation. And so these, it was just all these little incremental, like big baby steps. Um, and yeah, it got, became more and more exciting with each, with each day, with each, uh, you know. So how did you get through school? I mean, cause here you are playing shows. I mean, <laughs> just barely. Yeah. I really, I, yeah. By the, <laughs> by, by the time we, I got midway through my senior year, I, I really wanted to just drop out. But my parents were like, you've got to be kidding. You, you know, we, you've come this far. <laughs> We've, we, there has to be a plan for you to get through your senior year. And so somehow, um, I don't know who I convinced to help me make that a reality, but I, I'm sure that there were a few friends and it, I know of at least one girlfriend that, that made it so. <laughs> I, I won't lie. Well, I can't imagine. I mean, thinking about myself in high school, I can't imagine. I mean, I didn't pay it. Mom, you're not listening, are you? Um, I, I mean, I got good grades in high school, but it was it wasn't my priority, and and I didn't have I wasn't playing shows. I wasn't going. Yeah. to I, mean, I grew up in Tacoma, so it wasn't like I was coming over to Spokane to play. I, you, here you are. You got Sub Pop Records talking to you. You've got. I mean, that's that I, I, surreal. It was very surreal, and when we signed our first contract with SST Records right after my senior year. And at that time, SST was considered probably the most happening record label in in the world. They had, I mean, let me, let me read you a list of um, just some of the highlights from their roster. Black Flag, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., The Meat Puppets, The Minutemen, Husker Du, Dinosaur Jr. All these bands were on SST. And, um, when the Screaming Trees went to see Black Flag during my senior year, when they were playing in Seattle, we knew that Black Flag's guitarist Greg Ginn was also the owner of this incredible record label. So we brought our the demo tape that we made right where we're sitting, and I put it right next to his amplifier, or excuse me, next to his monitor, and um, he picked it up and put it on his amp. We forgot all about it, but that was that was our the first seed we planted. Um. With, with that label. And, you know, within a couple of years, we were part of the roster. And, but that was probably the most exciting day of my life in, in music was, was getting to join that roster. 
Did he listen to the tape? Absolutely. So he, he so he didn't just like pick it up and like get it out of his way. He yeah. He picked it up and at some point he listened to you. Yeah, and uh-huh. there's actually a second part of the story that I failed to mention was that S- Steve Fisk who produced those first recordings of ours had a friend named Ray Farrell who'd gone to work for SST and Steve sent our record Clairvoyance which we had just finished to to Ray um not really even um in hopes of of us getting signed to SST but he knew that Ray might be able to help us find some shows down in LA which he did and um but Ray played our our record for Greg and Greg pointed out to Ray that he'd already been listening to us ever since I dropped off this cassette with him when we came to check out Black Flag so um yeah you start planting seeds as early as you can and you never know when you know, something's going to grow out of it. That's really, really cool. Yeah, I was really, I was <laughs> really, really outgoing. Cool. I was kind of the, I was sort of the spokesperson for our band early on and the one out there shaking hands and consigning our cassettes at record stores in Seattle and, you know. Um, so. How were, so how were cassette sales in Seattle? I mean, because you, earlier on, you kind of, you said you weren't sure because you guys are isolated in yeah. Ellensburg. I'm, putting words in your mouth with that word isolated. But here you are in Ellensburg, Cascade Curtain, as you called it. You play a show in Olympia. You you got good response. So you're like, okay, this will play well in Peoria. So how, how when you were consigning cassettes, how was it? Yeah. I, I don't know where I developed the audacity to just walk into record stores, but we would, we would drive to Seattle and go hit the Ave University District because there was about, eight or 10 record stores within six blocks of each other back then, maybe within three blocks of each other. And we, you know, I would walk in with a few cassettes and maybe like, I don't remember if we had like a little press kit of, of reviews or anything like that, or, well, it, 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 it also helped that we immediately landed a, a radio show before Clara Vance even came out. We ended up uh, being guests on, KCMU's Audio Oasis, which was their local show. And Jonathan Poneman was the host. And Jonathan became Bruce's partner at Sub Pop. So here's all how all these, you know, worlds connect is somehow probably Bruce or Calvin Johnson mentioned to Jonathan that we'd be a good, you know, a good guest for his radio show. <laughs> and so that gave us a little extra street cred. So when you walked into a record store, you could say, hey, my name is Mark Pickerel. I'm the drummer in this band called The Screaming Trees. We're going to be guests on KCMU's Audio Oasis next week. And we're looking for places that might be willing to stock our cassette and this and that. And, you know, and so we just, um, you know, we just, as Too Short would say, we you get in where you fit in. You know, you just figure out different ways to... to um, secure some kind of relationship with a store or, you know, um, leave a good impression wherever you can. And, and that's what we did. You know, like uh, people always say in the music industry, it's not, it's not what you know, it's who you know, but more importantly, it's whether or not you leave a good impression. Right. And we were really dedicated to that, to making as many friends as we, as we could and to nurturing as many little relationships as we could. And, and, um, I think that really served us well over the years. In fact, the whole, you know, the whole industry is based on relationships. 
as you you know you can probably attest to in in the current field that you you know work in and well that and having the audacity to pick up the phone and call somebody yeah. and have a conversation yeah. even if the conversation's like no no thank you right You'd be surprised most of the conversations have been yeah i'd like to do that I, i'm really very pleased and, and at this i think i figured out the best pickup line of 2021 is do you want to be on a podcast i it just works <laughs> um <clears throat> it, uh, anyway we could talk about the screaming trees and I, I don't think we i could do that chapter of your life justice so i'm going to ask you one last question about the trees and we'll move on when you remember the trees it, was there a memorable show for you that you thought was just like, wow, this is cool? There was a couple. Okay. One was um, opening for Sonic Youth at, I want to say it was the King Street Station. Oh. It, um, I forget. There's there's two stations right there in Pioneer Square. Um, one's a functioning train station and the other one, I, at least at the time, I don't think was. But anyway, I think it was a King Street Station opening for Sonic Youth was a really big deal. And also we shared... We shared bills with uh, Soundgarden, and um, we we played their first record release party at the Tractor Tavern, which was really incredible. And then we played their um, the the first date of their um, right after, right after they signed with A and M. They their their first major label release was um, Loud, Louder Than Love, and we played like the launch the launch date of that record release party and the launch of that tour with them at the Moore Theater um, around nine, 1989, I think. And that was an incredible night. That was... Um, ah. Okay. Um, Tad, Screaming Trees, Soundgarden. Incredible night. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, I literally could go on and on. No, I, yeah, and I... Yeah. And but, it, but you're right. Let's... let's uh, but I do want to ask can, one other question about kind of about that era. Uh-huh. You you played drums with Nirvana. Uh-huh. I should add we when I played with Kurt well, and Chris right. of Nirvana, we were operating under the name The Jury rather than okay. um Nirvana. Those recordings ended up coming out on a Nirvana record and so people oftentimes mistakenly Introduce me as a member of Nirvana, which, you know, I'm happy to, if it, if it opens up doors that normally wouldn't be available to me, um, I'm all, I'm all, you're all for, for it. it, except I, I do when in a, in an environment like this, I feel like I should set the record straight for my own credibility. Right. So the reason I'm asking this question is you mentioned you guys went over to Olympia. Yeah. And what little I really know of. Kurt Cobain was, you know, Aberdeen and they played in Olympia yeah. a lot. How did you meet the, meet Kurt and Chris? You know, we we saw them perform right down the street at a community center here in Ellensburg called Hal Home Center. And they oh. were incredible. I don't think that I met them that night, but they left an incredible impression with, with all of us. Um, and then we had heard that they signed with Sub Pop. And then friends of ours... Um, mentioned to us that they were huge Screaming Trees fans. And in fact, I, I remember when the Screaming Trees opened up for Sonic Youth in Portland around 87, that Kurt and Chris came out to see the show and ended up hanging out with us backstage. And they, they, they may have mentioned at that point that they were big fans of our records. And in fact, Kurt actually wrote us a fan letter at some point that that appears in some book. Um, 
Okay. So he was a fan of ours and we were, we were fans of theirs and, you know, just ended up in the same rooms, same shows over and over again. And so, yeah. And so you guys got together, recorded a few, few songs kind of as a project. Right. That's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. All right. So I'm going to like grind these gears and let's fast forward to now. Uh-huh. Cause I was listening to some of your, uh, Mark Pickerel and praying, praying hands. I could not get the peyote three on Spotify. Oh, okay. I could not find it on there. Good so no, it may, you know, um, that may be my own fault that I, I submitted that recording a little bit late for it to, to okay. meet the deadline. Most likely I would imagine that like any day now. And by the time, by the time this is live, it'll be, yeah. I think that it'll be available through Spotify by then. And I have this, I don't know what, how I want to describe this to you, but so when I think of you, mm-hmm. I think of you as this, cause I was watching the video of your, uh, I nearly lost you. And I was laughing cause it was recorded in Ellensburg and I never noticed that before. Uh-huh. I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> this yeah. is Ellensburg. I just, you know, anyway, yeah. but I think of you as in that genre of music. Yeah. And so I'm listening to you play more contemporary stuff yeah. now. And we're much older than we were back then. Mm-hmm. But here you are, and I'm butchering your history, but I think of you as a drummer, and here you are now, front of the band, mm-hmm. singing, playing guitar. Mm-hmm. What inspired that evolution? Well, it's actually kind of a sad story. Um, a, f- a few things in my career had sort of stalled or hit a wall or... Um, Really, um, tragedy struck in the um, so a few months before Kurt died, Kurt asked me to play drums on what would have been the follow up to In Utero. So I was going to actually play drums on Nirvana's uh, on one of what would have been Nirvana's next record. Kurt died. Um, and my affiliation or association with Mark Lanigan had stalled partly because of the choices he was making at that time in his career. And I, I thought that I was going to continue playing on Mark's solo records long after I'd quit the screaming trees. Well, Mark became um, less and less prolific during that period. Um, and there, I was just having a hard time staying busy as a musician, as a drummer. And it was pretty evident to me that if I was going to be as productive and as prolific as as I wanted to be, it was gonna it was gonna mean having to um, set out into a different direction and you know learn how to write and learn how to um, try and convey some of the ideas that I'd had inside me for many years. But I never really had a, a strong desire to be a front man or to um, really even be the the creative force within or behind a band. But because I, I just wasn't um, staying as active as I wanted to as a musician, um, I recognized that it was time for me to, to uh, pursue some, some other, uh, a different direction and a different course for my life. And so I, I bought an acoustic guitar and started writing. It was around um, probably around 93. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not a music critic, and I don't want to read anybody else's reviews because they'll put words into my head. I'm, but when I was listening to some of the songs that you have, 
melancholy, uh-huh. maybe. That works. Yeah. Okay. Would... And, and but not morose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But subdued and mm-hmm. and and I call it, I think of it as mood music. So melancholy is okay. I would say it would be a good. But your voice. <sighs> long long pause here, folks. Um. <laughs> Your voice, there was elements of it that I just made me think of, and this is going to maybe be funny to you, and but Johnny Cash, mm-hmm. and I get that a lot. And do it you? Is funny okay, because I I hadn't written because I'm I, I'm trying to be I'm trying to come up with my own words to express this. Yeah, but it was this. It's funny because growing up here, I had a stronger version to country music. Okay, and um, <laughs> here's here's some irony for you. We lived on Radio Road, on the same like about probably 40 yards from the KXLE radio tower. And KXLE is like Ellensburg's country music radio station. (laughs) Um, But, you know, in the 1970s and and in the 80s, country music had really taken a turn for the worse, for the most part. Um, And, you know, country music was really something that I associated with or affiliated with, like, um, you know, guys in truck slowing down and you know rolling down their windows and throwing beer bottles at us like country music was the soundtrack to us being you know assaulted with beer bottles <laughs> um <laughs> and and so so i you know I, I grew up with a really negative affiliation with it and i'm also not exaggerating when i say that when we picked up the tele because we were so close to the radio tower when we picked up the telephone to make a phone call from our house you could hear like take this job and shove it or Dolly Parton's nine to five, like on in coming from the phone. So um, I don't care what you heard coming was, through your phone. You would have hated it. Yeah. You, you would have probably, hated, you would yeah. have hated screaming trees. Yeah. If you would have heard it pick up, you also, pick up the phone. Oh, and you know, you know, here's another funny thing, just like in the movie groundhog day <laughs> back then, KXLE's broadcast in the early morning was totally canned. Uh-huh. And, so oftentimes you would hear the same song. So when my alarm went off in the morning, oftentimes you'd hear the exact same song at the same time for days on end. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's really the way it was, not just the way I remember it. But anyway, um, it wasn't until years later that I even developed any kind of um, positive association with country music. But eventually, uh, apparently I did. And the first couple records I did as a solo artist I was really self-conscious of my voice because I could hear this kind of country element in there. And um, so I really tried to do whatever I could to disguise that by using a lot of synthesizers and do, just doing whatever I could to offset my discomfort with the fact that I sounded like Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash. Um, but eventually I had to just accept who I am as a singer. And and now I'm, I'm a huge fan of that genre and especially that period from like the, you know, 50s and 60s, a little bit, a little bit of the 70s. I still don't really like that that period where country kind of transitioned into like y- using like aspects of disco and you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'll take the Johnny Cash as a compliment. The Johnny and, and yeah, it it was. I was like I was listening to it and I go, "There's just this." It evoked this memory of Cash, sure. and, and I'm not a huge Johnny Cash fan. Uh-huh. I mean, it just there was this. So. Mark Pickerel and his praying hands. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that name? Well, it's funny. So I just, like you mentioned earlier, um, I now 
we're calling the, the band uh, Pickerel and the Peyote 3. And part of it was because I wanted to sort of shed this um, image that I was kind of, that I had kind of adopted this wolf in sheep's clothing, like this preacher man with a secret kind of, you know, um, image or, um, or whatever, because I just, you know, I, I used to sort of be fascinated with those kind of characters that you often read about and see in old Western films, um, the snake oil salesman or the preacher who's, you know, really a villain underneath. Um, but more and more, you know, you see those kind of people still operating uh, out there in the world and it's, it's, there's, there's nothing attractive about it in reality. And I just decided I kind of wanted to, to, um, I wanted to move on and, 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 and not be, um, I just didn't, I just didn't want to do anything else under that monic, anything else under that moniker from now on, even though the general public probably had no idea that that was even something that I was, uh, that I was pretending to. Okay. Uh, you know what I mean? It, no. it, it just became a personal thing. I just decided like, I want to, I want to start operating under a different name. And, um, and also when you do that, when you start using different images and, and, uh, names, album titles, artwork, all that stuff, it, it, it helps inspire new creativity. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, you know, it's just time. But actually I also want to say that the name originally just came from, it, it really just came out of um, one time seeing uh, the praying hands tattoo, the classic praying hands tattoo on the um, shoulder of like this really buff, strong guy. And I, I thought it was powerful that such a, uh, such a um, masculine guy would wear a praying hands tattoo on his arm. And I thought that really showed a lot, you know, um, really revealed a humble um a humble aspect of this this person's character that I was really attracted to but then it like I said then it kind of next thing I knew I was playing on all that imagery and also sort of taking on this like preacher man kind of okay uh image that I like I said that I just decided I wanted to abandon so is the peyote 3 a band or is it revolving musicians yeah, is this- it's kind of a collaborative okay it, if if it could be a permanent band, I would love that. But the guys that I play with are in such high demand uh, and so busy with multiple projects that I, I can never seem to... I can't remember the last time I played more than two or three shows in a row with the same lineup. And I used to really kind of resent that and and wish that uh, I could just bring the same band out night after night. But now um, there's kind of this collective of guys... Um, Johnny Sangster, Jeff Fielder, Ian Moore, all incredibly talented guitarists who are in such high demand. I mean, you know, Johnny plays with Nico Case, uh, Jeff Fielder plays with the Indigo Girls and Mark Lanigan. Uh, Ian Moore uh, is a headlining, um, he's a he's a headliner and has shared the stage with everyone from Bob Dylan to the Rolling Stones and Anyway, so, so, so nobody's. <laughs> yeah. So as you can imagine, these guys are in really high demand. And um, because I don't get the tour as often as I'd like to, there's just not enough money to keep these guys. You know, I can't like, I can't keep them on a, you know, the payroll. Right. Um, so, yeah. So now it's just this collaborative or this collective um, that I call the Peyote Three, but it really represents about maybe like eight or 10 different people. 
so do they are they are are you recording all the parts or are they recording them um how, let, walk me through yeah, a recording the process now today yeah so i i i write the songs on my acoustic guitar and oftentimes i have maybe drum parts in mind and guitar parts in mind um melodies uh themes things like that production ideas but i do i typically i present every song to as many uh as two to four musicians usually we're we're rehearsing for a show Mm -hmm. and i'll pitch a couple of new songs during rehearsal and see if we can fit one of them into the uh, uh a show and um Anyway, so we start developing the songs in traditional rehearse, like traditional band rehearsals, and then um, we'll take we'll take a song to the studio. Sometimes I'll end up ta- I'll end up playing the drums on my own songs, depending on who's available on a particular day to record. Um, you know, like Mike Musburger, who's played drums on like four of my releases now. Uh, like literally, literally the last time I booked studio time. Um, he had to to leave the session early for a gig with Kerry Ockery. And um, so his drums, but he, but he left the studio kit at the session and used a different set for the show. And, you know, studio time is expensive. So I just, you know, we, I asked Mike if it was cool with him, if I go ahead and just play drums on my own song. And he had no problem with it. He, he gets it. And um, so really we just, we kind of just, um, improvise as we go along and, and figure out who's going to play what and um, and sometimes we switch roles okay yeah you're a very interesting person and I want to I want to talk about things that are not music related and I'm, I know I know I'm shortchanging music but I'm going to ask you two questions about music in general I've already asked you the questions now I'm going to spin them a little differently when you go see music play, mm-hmm. when you go see performers in Washington State, can you name a venue or two that you think is an outstanding place to see music performed? Sure. I'll start with the Gorge, even though it's kind of a <laughs> it's no your backyard. Brain. Yeah, it's in the backyard. Um, I mean, it, it, it just has so much to offer. Even if you don't enjoy the music you're hearing, which is pretty unlikely, you're going to have scenery that you're not going to see anywhere else in the world. It's beautiful. Um, Usually the production is incredible. Um, The sound is usually incredible. Who have you seen at the Gorge? A memorable show for you at the Gorge. Uh, I'll start with saying that I was there for one of the very first concerts, or it might have been like, you know, maybe a couple of years into their operation i saw bob dylan and tracy chapman there um, and that was back when you um you could you'd walk in and everyone was allowed to buy two bottles of wine and you could you just go sit out on a you know you bring your own blanket and mm-hmm. oh, that was great and, yeah it was incredible um but some other some other incredible shows uh the who oh. um rem radiohead david bowie depeche mode oh. <laughs> i I've seen and performed at at least a couple of Lollapaloozas there. Oh, wow. And uh, sharing the stage with, um, it's pretty cool. After I quit the Screaming Trees, I I joined a band called Truly, and we got booked to play the side stage at Lollapalooza a couple years in a row, sharing the stage with band like a a few bands before they were even household names like Primus and Tool. Um, 
but yeah, so, uh, and then also I owned a record store here in Ellensburg for several years called Rodeo Records. And because of our close proximity, proximity to the gorge, we were asked to be the Lollapalooza record retailer back in the, in the nineties. So for like two or three years in a row, um, we were the ones stocking all of the artists CDs and, and merch. And we did like, um, on-site autograph signings uh, under our our umbrella and everything really really exciting period okay um, hosting like you know live signings from everybody from nick cave to l7 to the beastie boys and um oh. selling records to beck and like so we were we brought we brought our we brought used records out there as well and so oftentimes before the show started any artists that showed up earlier in the day um, would come and record shop from us. And like I said, Be- oh. Beck, Beck came and bought a bunch of records and Cypress Hill and Coolio and uh, Nick <laughs> Cave. It was, it was really fun. So anyway, that's my, that's one of my top venues. Other smaller clubs that I love to play or to see music at would be the Showbox would be probably number one. Which Showbox? Se- Seattle, downtown Showbox. The only one that matters. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I actually don't mind seeing shows at Sotos Showbox, but it's not as special as, as seeing shows at, um, the show box. And I also love playing the show box. I've played there as a drummer probably eight or 10 times. I, I was the drummer there for Nico case. I've played with the screaming trees there. Um, wow. I've done a lot of, um, shows with, uh, like members of Pearl jam and guns and roses there, uh, under the, um, uh, collaborating with this lady named Deborah Heesh who works for STG. She oftentimes puts on these really incredible, um, fundraisers for different uh, organizations and causes and she'll bring together members of all these you know different seattle artists and will you know raise money for an, an event anyway um i love seeing shows and playing at the tractor um but yeah i could go on and on it's funny because i ask that question all the time yeah the tractors probably with our current with the current guest list I think the tractor's coming in probably at number one. Yeah, that's really cool. The gorge gets mentioned, uh-huh. but not as much as you might think. Yeah, but the tractor, the tractor, the and the triple door. The triple door is another venue that I people love playing yeah, the triple door. A lot yeah, of, yeah. If, yeah. But the, I love the tractor. I, I don't know why, but there's something about it's not a great. It's an awkward room, right? Like if you walked in there at noon. Um, to do janitorial work or whatever, you wouldn't think to yourself like, man, this would be a great place to see a band. Or, yeah, I mean, there isn't really anything especially attractive about it. But somehow you put a band on stage. you get people in there. Yeah. 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 And it's funny, I used to play there so much. You know, I was the drummer in the Dusty 45s for a while and we were regulars there. I was in the Souvenirs for a while and then started putting out my own solo records there was a period there in the um, early 2000s that I I would play there sometimes like three times a week, and in in a different lineup or you know headlining one night, playing drums the next night, sitting in with a band who needed a drummer, maybe playing um, a tribute night uh, a few days later, just singing one song during like a Towns Van Zant tribute night or something like that. So there, there'd be times when I would just get to leave my drums there for three days in a row. <laughs> um, Okay, yeah, it was it was pretty incredible. Can you think of a venue in Washington that you haven't played that you'd like to play? And I don't know that there's an answer to that. I'm Let's just see. curious. The Kingdom? 
A kingdom. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> did you ever good... see a band in the kingdom? You know, I never did. Oh. Um, I never got to. Not not a good place to see a band. No. Apparently. Did you ever see a band in the Tacoma Dome? I've seen I've seen lots of bands in the Tacoma Dome, and it's not a. Yeah, it's not my favorite place. To, but to it makes see. the it, it's. But I've had a couple of memorable experiences there. Or like when I was still in high school, I was I was lucky enough to see Deep Purple do their Perfect Strangers oh uh, show at the Tacoma Dome, and um, that was. That was a very meaningful and incredible evening of music. It was, you know, they brought Ian Gillen back to the band and they performed like all the, you know, Highway Star and Smoke on the Water and, you know, just, it was amazing. Um, saw Robert Plant there, saw the first Kiss reunion tour there or the makeup reunion tour. And, and they're on what version of the of the reunion tour now? Uh, the, yeah. Their last yeah. tour this, volume This was 12? pretty exciting for me because I didn't get to see them with makeup the first time around. So this okay. was in my early 20s when they reformed with Peter and Ace. And okay. So anyway. Yeah, but the Kingdom was not a yeah not a good venue. Um, I don't think the Tacoma Dome is a great venue. No. And it's awesome compared to what I remember yeah. the Kingdom. All right. Now we're going to, we're done with the music chapter of your life. Okay. We're closing it. For this episode. Well, that's not true because you sell records. <laughs> You've got a, a a really cool store in the Thorpe Fruit Mall. Uh, fruit, um, fruit and Antique Mall. Yeah. Fruit and Antique Mall. How did you get involved? Because you got a lot of vintage vinyl. You got some some old vintage clothing that's well curated. How did you, how did you get here? Yeah, not to sound like a talking okay, head. Okay, so yeah, what Scott's referring to is I have this this space that I refer to as Road Trip Records, and we exist under the umbrella of Thorpe Fruit and Antique Mall, which is located about a hundred miles east of Seattle, right off I ninety exit one hundred one. I started selling I started selling um, primarily vintage vinyl out of there about seven years ago. Well, back in the right after I left the Screaming Trees around '91, I I opened up my own record store here in Ellensburg called Rodeo Records, and we operated for about 13 years. When when we first started, um, I started with like a thousand dollar small business loan. That's as much money as I had to spend on new product, and so I was looking for different ways to increase our inventory and 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 add something unique to our inventory that our competitor Ace Records didn't um, offer. And I, I had a, a really good friend who lived in Spokane named Jack Kendall, who I still see all the time. And he had a he had a vintage clothing shop uh, called Rick's Classic Rags over there. And he, he left Rick's Classic Rags and was kind of doing his own thing. And I asked him if he could if we could consign vintage clothes at Rodeo Records. And that was kind of my first introduction or affiliation with that you know that side hustle was just uh and anyway it's been a a, a long time fascination of mine is vintage vinyl and vintage clothes they they both you know they seem to work really well together and and uh and and plus you can find them in the same places so when i'm out hunting for vintage records it's you know oftentimes i'm at an estate sale where i'm also going to come across a vintage wardrobe and um, so, yeah, it's just uh, 
one of many things that fascinates me. Well, your collection in, in Thorpe is, is really interesting. And then and we share, a, you know, I, I shared with you before that I used to work for an industry that similar, you know, similar thing mm-hmm. on a different scale, but similar. Is it still fun looking it's, for stuff? I mean, is it still it's make a, so make you fun? It's so fun that you could. So I actually did a podcast um, called Dream Path Podcast with a, a friend named Brian out of um, Yakima just a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about how he was accused recently of um, participating in what's called like um, productive distraction or constructive distraction or something like that. And it's when you, um, in an attempt to avoid the thing that you really want to do the most, in my case, that might be like making music and recording records, you find yourself um, engaged in all this other busy work that's really fun and fascinating and cathartic and but maybe it's preventing you from doing the thing that you really should be focusing your attention on and that's what i'm guilty of with records and vintage clothes and antiquing and junkin and thrifting and i mean i could i could go days without doing anything else and be happy just sourcing vintage stuff like that's just like how i would like to spend all of my days, all of the time. And I have to actually remind myself to take time out of all of that to work on lyrics to a new song or to, you know, to, to promote my new record, things like that. And, you know, somebody asked me recently, a friend of mine, um, who was also from Wenatchee, um, he, he pointed out, or he was asking me, I, um, uh, give me a second here and we'll edit this. The Comet. Okay, I have a friend that has this publication called The Comet out of uh, out of uh, Wenatchee, and he was asking me for an interview I did with them recently. If and his name is his name is Ron Evans. He was asking me recently, um, you know, if if I was more interested in, or he was asking me to kind of explain um, how I transition or segue from my retail business into my retail business and how, um, and I was reminding him or informing him that to me, the, the two worlds inform each other all the time. And they're they're to me, they're in concert with each other all the time. And I'm learning, I'm learning things from, uh, this world, um, that, that I'm so preoccupied with where I'm outsourcing all this old stuff. And, but I'm, I'm learning from all I'm, 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 I'm like really like digging through history and it's, and I'm, I'm, I'm unearthing all of these stories about our past here in Washington state. And, um, and I do a lot of soul searching as I'm, I'm looking through all these, you know, what I consider artifacts of, of, um, of Western civilization here in the Northwest. And, a lot of my songs reflect that or a lot of that is reflected in my songs. And so I don't really look at it as two different worlds um, that are compartmentalized. I, I find myself kind of swimming back and forth between the, the two things. And not to mention I'm handling records all day long and I see 
I see a lot of the same records by different bands or different titles by one band spanning like a 10 or 20 year career. And you sort of see where bands made mistakes or where they um, maybe tried to to cross over um, um, from being like an album oriented band into being pop stars. And you see like different mistakes that they may have made along the way. And um, you, so you, and, and you start to, you know, ask yourself questions about your own career and where you've made the same mistakes or um, make sure to, to view this as a cautionary tale and don't do what this band did. And, you know, I mean, so, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly, um, yeah. Do you, when you're specifically with vinyl or CDs, uh, cause those are vintage now too, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Do you, Spend much time listening. Like so, you go to an estate sale and there's a, a large cache of records, and mm-hmm. you just probably pick them all up, and then you you sort through them and you go, yeah, you know, uh, I've got 37 of this one, and right. you know, and that, ooh, here here's something. And mm-hmm. do you take the time to listen? Yeah. So uh, uh, let me. I'm just going to jump right in here. I recently just bought a record collection out of Kittitas, which is uh, just 10 miles east of Ellensburg. And it was just like a maybe like gosh, a hop, skip, and a jump from where I grew up. Um and this this guy had acquired his dad's record collection. His dad grew up in in LA in the nineteen fifties and sixties and was just an avid fan and and record buyer. Anyway, he'd acquired thousands of records. I anyway, I, I acquired this collection of his dad's consisting of all these seven-inch singles by artists like Etta James and Buddy Guy and Howlin' Wolf and just incredible. But Scott, what I wanted to say is that not not only do I listen to a lot of those records, but um, going back to this idea that I'm informed by that process, I'll I'll, um, give you an extra um, glimpse into how it sometimes um, influences me is I'm really fascinated by seven-inch singles and just the idea of, you know, just that that for many years that's how people enjoyed music and oftentimes when i'm i'm and you know and you study the graphics and the cool label and sometimes there's a cool picture sleeve or or whatever and oftentimes when i'm working on my own songs i'll ask myself is this song worthy of would it have been worthy of producing a 7 inch single during you know you know in the in the 1950s 60s or 70s like mm-hmm. does this does this song have what it takes to you know to warrant that kind of um uh format mm-hmm. and usually the answer is no in fact you know 90% of the time the answer is no and then you have to start asking yourself why like well, why why doesn't this song possess the same qualities as a good 7-inch single why doesn't it deserve its own format why doesn't it deserve a picture sleeve and then you start kind of like you really examine the song and go okay well for one thing it's a 5-minute song and so then you then you're in a position where you can ask yourself does it need to be 5 minutes long and maybe there's some justification for it being a 5-minute song let's not forget that like that stairway to heaven was a you know a half an hour long <laughs> just kidding but but i mean occasionally there, there's there's justification for a song exceeding the three and a half minute you know seven inch single mark or whatever but oftentimes there's not a good justification for that and then you start examining you know wh- whether or not there's just too many verses and whether or not you need to go be like 
going back to the bridge a second or third time within the same song. And okay, let's cut two of the bridges out. Let's cut the solo section in half. Anyway, so so yes, um, that world to me is has become an essential part of of my creative process. So I when I go to work as a retailer in the morning, oftentimes I'm I'm collecting thoughts throughout the day and notes to myself um, throughout that process that I apply later on to my songwriting and creative journey. Well, <laughs> is that the longest answer? No, because the I the thing is, is that I I completely can see how they would help both. Mm-hmm. I I can. I mean, I know that if I were, you know, going through a record collection I just purchased, and I'm sure, you know, Zeppelin Four, you've got literally, you probably throw it away because there's how many thousands of copies have you obtained through the years, right? But if you were to find a seven inch single from, say, Etta James, you're like, I haven't heard this before. I would stop and I would listen to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether I'll appreciate it, like it, mm-hmm. or if it's going to change my world. You don't know. But it's certainly worth three minutes of your time. Yeah. And you wouldn't have been exposed to it without doing your retail gig. Yeah. So exactly. I see it as being a a, a, a complementary, but yet yeah. integral component of. Integral is the word I was trying to find earlier, so thank you. And yeah, they're they're very much, you know, I don't want to say left and right brain, but they're they're independent. Yeah. But there there's there's this overlay where they come in. I I see it. Also, I've always been fascinated by retail, and um, so so presenting, curating, and presenting that product back to the universe is really important to me. Um, I like to do it as artistically as possible. And and I don't really know where that fascination came from, but just from the time I was really young, I was just really intrigued with retail environments. And so, um, you know, I apply that to, to, to what I'm doing. And in fact, my bandmates always tease me because I always show up at every gig like two hours early to like, really present our merch in the most sophisticated way that I possibly can. And oftentimes it's all for naught because by the time another band shows up with their merch and then by the time, um, <laughs> yeah, Nick, next thing I know somebody's saying, Hey, you can't set that up over there. That's where, um, our, you know, bus station is going to, uh, that's where we're going to have, uh, this alternate bar tonight where right. we're going to serve, you know, Bud Light and Bud Light. So can you take that down? And, you know, um, I take it all way too seriously, but, but yeah, also all these things are related in my mind. And I, I, vintage stuff resonates with me. Uh I, I, I I look backwards far more than I look forwards. I I, I look back on, on historical events far more than I worry about or even think about optimistically the future. So I'm, I'm wired that direction. Question. It involves your life. So you grew up here in Ellensburg. Mm-hmm. You, ch- you formed a band. You got to see a bunch of the world playing playing stage. At least you got to see hotel rooms and stages in parts of the United States and the world. Why did you come back? Why, why is Ellensburg home for you? Well, it's kind of complicated. First, I'll just say this. I do love living here. I love the terrain. I love... 
the I love waking up to the um, smell of sage and lavender and um, it's you know it's a beautiful place to live. The view of the Cascades, you, you know, you just can't beat it. The drive, the Canyon Drive from Cleelum to Yakima, is one of the most intriguing uh, works of art I've ever been exposed to, and has has fueled um, many lyrics. I've I probably I probably released 10 or 15 songs that I've written between Ellensburg and, and Yakima and back just, just really? from that, that drive. It just inspires so much creativity for me. Um, but, you know, I have made a couple of attempts to, to live in Seattle and um, I love Seattle. Um, basically, I just got priced out of any neighborhood that I would want to live in over there. And I'll say that, you know, I would be happy living in the south of France. I love New York City. I would love to live in a in a uh, a penthouse apartment in New York City. I love Austin, Texas. I love Tucson, Arizona. I love San Francisco. I used to think that I'd live in L.A. someday, and I still wish I could. But it's practical for me to live here. I know everybody. It's affordable. I'm an hour and a half from the city where my band where my entire where all my bandmates live um there just isn't a feasible practical reason for me to live somewhere else so i I don't want to pretend that i only live here because it's the only place i want to live i do love it and um i find it very inspiring and i feel like um I'm as happy here as I would be in any of the places that I just described okay um, and I have been to london i've been to france i've been to italy and i i I want to go back. I can't wait to go back, but I'm also really happy here. And I also find Washington state to be really unique, um, both in terms of its geography and how everything it has to offer and its people. Um, so yeah, but sometimes you have to just accept that like, no, I, you know, the planets line up and you kind of, you know, I don't normally ask questions framed negatively, but I'm going to ask a negatively framed okay. question. If you could, get whatever you wanted Uh what is the one thing that ellensburg's missing that you wish it had for you for mark pickerel if ellensburg had you can snap your fingers and Mm -hmm. it's there so what's it missing that austin or new york or or la might you know yeah yeah you know and i thankfully i see this um i see our dining options expanding okay which is very important to me um I'm lucky that there are like two or three restaurants in Ellensburg that really appeal to me and my family. Um, Sugar Thai, our our Thai restaurant is okay. world class. Um, we eat at a restaurant called C5 all the time. Okay. Um, and we eat at uh, Ellensburg Pasta Company okay. a lot. Anyway, there's a few restaurants here in town that I really like. We ate at the Tav this week and they still make this the Super Mother Burger the same way they did <laughs> 30 years ago and the Barney burger the same way they did 40 years ago. So anyway, I, I get by with, with what Ellensburg mm-hmm. has to offer in the way of cuisine, but I, I, I'm anxious and always looking forward to our, uh, the expansion in, okay. in, in that world. Um, I, but, um, in general, I find that most of my needs here are being met. Um, we could use a good music venue, um, while we're on that subject, we haven't had, a good um, live music 
venue operating here since the one you mentioned earlier that burned down in the in the 80s called the Ranch Tavern. We've had a couple places that bands can play and that occasionally do play, but um, we haven't had like a functioning music venue here for as long as yeah. I've been since I turned 21. Um, so that would be really cool if somebody could could um, make that so. I am really proud of our art gallery, Gallery One. Mm-hmm. Um, they have become an incredible force for for um, the good of uh, the the greater good here in Ellensburg. Um, their uh, their Friday art walks are um, as uh, impressive as any that I've been to around the world, and and their commitment to um, uh, their outreach is really impressive. They they um, they have programs for kids. They have prog- programs for adults. They have um, uh, they have these just really well curated exhibits. Um, it's very thoughtful. It's very um, professional. It's world class. Okay. Yeah, I don't normally ask a negative question, yeah, but, but I'll be honest with you, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the, my own yeah, question. Please do. Uh, with Wenatchee, uh-huh. I love Wenatchee uh-huh. also, but it's the cuisine. Yeah. it it. I wish we had. Yeah. And now with, with the pandemic, it was hard for anybody. Yeah. We'll give everybody a pass, but. <laughs> yeah. The, I I just wish there yeah. was some some different cuisine. I think cuisine. all of central Washington kind of suffers from that. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's sort of changed that has been the introduction of all the um, craft breweries and wineries that have appeared that are kind of scattered throughout mm-hmm. central Washington and eastern Washington. And that has raised the level of quality of of options for cuisine because um, if you're going to have a um, if you want to be taken seriously uh, as a as a as a grower and or or host tastings, um, you you want to have the cuisine that matches that like that you know that complements that. So I think that that has really raised the level out here, like from Walla Walla to, um, especially from Yakima to Walla Walla, a lot of (laughs) restaurants, I think probably were born out of um, like, you know, different caterers that were working full time for different um, wineries out there, you know, saw an opportunity and a lot of restaurants I think have, have, uh, have come, come out of that. So I I hope some of them come to Wenatchee. I mean, I do. Yeah. I get it. So when you're not doing your retail and you're not doing your music, what do you and the family like to do for entertain? What do the kids like to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, while well, I walk to the Yakima River from our house about three times a week, I take our dog. I walk our dog around um, People's Pond. Oh my gosh! Yeah, um, <laughs> it's really great. We that Ellensburg has a new park um called rotary park it's kind of an extension of west ellensburg park right here off of third street um so just like three blocks from where scott and i are sitting right now and so i um and they've made this trail that that um basically a block from our house is the the um beginning of this trail that that goes uh, that takes you underneath i-90 and over to 
Kerry Lake, and then there's a path along the Yakima River right there that I can go on walks to and stuff. But yeah, we we go to the, we go swim in the Columbia River sometimes out at Vantage. We um, we spend a lot of time at the park, a uh, lot of lot of river walks. And do your kids like to go to Seattle with you? Do they, do the, yeah, does the family go to Seattle? My 13 year old um, has been bugging me about. When are we going to go to Seattle next? And she loves going to the market. She loves hanging out. I used to work at Easy Street Records in West Seattle. Oh, okay. And there's a bakery down the street that she um, is really anxious to to visit. And which one? Um, I'm I'm. Oh no, sorry, I put you on the spot. It's a block south of. Forgive me, I can't think of the name of this European French bakery. Okay, about a block and a half block and a half south of um, Easy, Easy Street Records on California Avenue. It's a, it's just a few doors down from the Husky Deli, which she also loves. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot. We, we used to spend a ton of time on Alki because I lived in West Seattle. And so, um, you know, love Alki Beach and love hanging out at Easy Street Records still and, and having breakfast there. Did you ever play? At Easy Street? Absolutely. In okay. fact, um, yeah, I had my record release party for Tess. We, we put a record out called Tess about seven years ago, and our record release party was at Easy Street. I also was lucky enough to, um, about six years ago, the Sonics reformed, and I got to play drums for the Sonics, one of my all-time favorite bands, and that was at Easy Street. So that was a really, you know, So there's a day. video out of the Sonics playing there. Yeah. So and I don't that. recall you playing drums. Was I'm there... playing drums on The Witch. So I think it was okay. the very last oh, song. Okay. So, and I was lucky to get that song because Matt Cameron from Soundgarden was signed up to play on that song. And so when I was asked what, you know, when I was asked what song would I want to play on by this, the Sonics, I, the first song that came to my mind was The Witch. It has this really classic, iconic drum intro and drum break throughout the song. And it's like total garage punk rock song. Anyway, but Matt was already signed up for that, and I'm not really in a position to ask Matt Cameron to to, to, <laughs> um, to forfeit. But he had to cancel. So at the very like a day before the show, I was told that in fact I could play on the Witch if I wanted to. So I had to really scramble to make sure I I really had it memorized. That there's a couple of complicated little twists and turns in that song that are are easy to to get mixed up. Anyway, but I I, th- I think I nailed it. It was really it was such a great night. Eddie Vedder sang that night. Um, you know, members of the presidents yep. played. Um, Calvin from Beat Happening sang. Van Connor from the Screaming Trees came up and played a song. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a great night. So I I watched that video. Yeah, and admittedly. Here I am talking to musicians in Washington State, and I, and I grew up in Tacoma, uh-huh. and I didn't know that much about the Sonics. So here was my takeaway of that video. How old were those guys at that time? In they're they're in their like eighties. I've never seventy like mid seventies to early. I've 80s. never seen a drummer so violently attack a drum kit. Okay, so that isn't their original drummer. Okay, but so that he, man, whoever yeah. he is, yeah. He's great. He came out of a band called Agent Orange. Um, <laughs> yeah, he he's an incredible drummer. Yeah, but I've never seen. I, I was I the the whole time I was watching, I just was obsessed with watching this drummer. Yeah, he's and incredible. I don't normally. I'm not. Yeah, a, I'm not like saying I I watch drummers all the time, but it was like he's a perfect take, man for that job, and he really propelled 
I, yeah. I, and I think it was helpful to them to have a guy who who, who could really drive the bus, you know, yeah. who really like, wow. yeah. Well, I want to wrap this up so we can get you yeah. going. And it's um, the time we're recording. This is what, it's probably 105, 110 degrees today. <laughs> right. it's, it's a yeah. balmy hundred and something. Mm-hmm. I'm a coffee nut. Are you a coffee fan? I love coffee. Recommendations? DNM. Got to go to DNM. <laughs> and if you're not a DNM person, they do serve Cafe Vita coffee out of um, at Vinman's Bakery, okay. which is we were talking about um, cuisine earlier, right? I think we have one of the best bakeries in the world right here in Ellensburg, Washington. It's called Vinman's. Yeah. It's just, it's adjacent to the campus. It's right off University. It's where Fris- by, right it, by yeah, where Frisini's right used to be. <laughs> Uh, look up Vinman's if you're in Ellensburg. Okay. Um, yeah, just incredible. In fact, uh, it it's now owned by a guy I went to high school with. Oh, yeah. Okay. So to wrap this up, you've got some new new songs out, right? I do. Yeah, yeah. I like I I think I don't know if I, we were recording when I said this at the time that we were recording this. I couldn't find them on Spotify, so they'll be out by yeah. the time that this is if live. If you look up Mark Pickerel and his praying hands, just about anywhere in the you know you you can you can find. Um, I I released two records that kind of um, complement each other within the last six months. The first one is called Rebel in the Rear View, and and uh, it it consists of about ten years worth of recordings. Um, and features all of our the cover versions of of different songs that we performed over the years as a band. Well, um, uh, those same at those same sessions, we recorded originals, and all the originals are on the new Pickerel and the Peyote Three record entitled "I Have Visions." Okay, and um, anyway, so yeah. Those, they, I during COVID, I really needed to to figure out how to make the best use of my time, and so I I like decided to like dig out all these abandoned recordings that I've been doing for the last ten years, and see if I could um, extract enough songs to release a record. Well, it turned out I had like twenty two songs that that really just needed some mixing and maybe a couple of overdubs and chorus harmonies and things like that. So. We've, uh, um, Johnny Sangster, my guitarist, who's also uh, a celebrated um, producer, went in and 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 did all the all the work to to bring these recordings back to life for me. And it turned out we had about eleven covers and about eleven originals. So I decided to to market them separately. And so that's so you've got okay two two releases that really are that really represent. Um, or that consist of the same recordings, just yeah. Anyway. Okay. And so, where where else can people find you if they want to find you? Amazon, uh, Spotify, Bandcamp is my preferred uh, place to send people because Bandcamp offers um, a really generous royalty rate to artists. So, if you want to contribute to the cause, the best thing to do is to go to Bandcamp and don't go to just the Mark Pickerel page, but go to the Mark Pickerel and his Praying Hands page where where you'll find. Um, my last four releases. Okay. And, um, but otherwise Apple music, YouTube, there's a YouTube channel now. Um, so really it's just basically a Google search away. You can find <laughs> any of this. Google Mark Pickerel and we yeah. will find you. We will. I really decided to go ahead and make the music available like on basically every legitimate platform, even though 
Some of them aren't as generous to the artists as others. It's really important to me that people hear the music because I want to get out there and, and start touring again. And the only way for me to, you know, any tour on the horizon. There's not a tour on the horizon, but I do have two dates coming up. I'm playing Slims, which is a really cool little roadhouse um, south of downtown on First Avenue. It's called uh, in Seattle. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Slims in Seattle on August seventh, and Slims on September tenth. Okay. And I'm actually also. I think I just got a text from my friend Trey out in Walla Walla, who has a um, a winery out there called Sleight of Hand. And I'm going to play his watch for dates coming up. I'm going to play his room and also in Soto at the Sleight of Hand's cellar, a tasting room coming up. I, we haven't confirmed the date yet, but by the time okay. this airs, if you just look up, you know, or go to my Facebook page and I'll, I'll announce a date. Okay. Just go to Mark Pickerel on Facebook and that's the best place to follow me for and Twitter. Oh, you're on Twitter too? Twitter. So okay. I'll, I'll, I'll always announce dates. We on all Twitter have different platforms like of choice. Yeah, I know. It's so I, funny. I, yeah. All right. I know we could spend an hour just listing all the places you can find me. <laughs> Google search is kind of the, <laughs> the ubiquitous yeah. um, place. Yeah. Well, thank you for making yeah, this happen. Thank you, Scott. I, I had a lot of fun. Me too. And I um, am looking forward to seeing you play live here shortly because you're playing at some venues I like to go to. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, if you find any of those albums I talked about before, then let me know. Anyway, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.